Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, I'm pastor here, and today we're starting a new series. Our big vision for the year um, that our leadership took some time to pray over over the past six months or so um, was, what is the vision for the year? (laughs) Together with one heart, I swear I've been sitting with this for like a long time. Um, Together with one heart and mind, um, drawing closer to God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, that that's really what we feel like the Lord's calling us to as we spent time in prayer, uh, as we spent time in discussion with leadership, with elders, with a lot of people that are just really devoted to our community. That's kind of what we honed in on was these kind of two parts. Like, this is, I mean, this is a huge surprise to me. You guys actually want to know God, you know? I fancy that. A whole group of people gathering together one Sunday uh, a week. You know, there's usually just one Sunday in the week. Uh, <laughs> Because there's an expectation. We're not here because we want to, you know, get farther in our careers, although that's important. We're not here because we want to learn more about ourselves, although that's important. We're here because we actually want to experience the real and living God. And the second part that that kind of came out of that time of prayer was recognizing we want to be drawn together in unity. But I think this community is a testament that unity is not something that we can manufacture Because a lot of times with human beings, when we try to manufacture unity, what we're looking for is uniformity, that we all think the same, we feel the same, we have the same standards, expectations, and so on. And that tends to lead to tribalism, where we continually find ourselves more and more secluded from people who are not like us. But when we actually choose to tap into the unity that we have in Jesus, the diversity present becomes this asset, becomes this beautiful reflection of the heart of God. And so this whole year, we want to be a year of intimacy, of learning. How do we step deeper into relationship with God? And how do we allow that pursuit, that common pursuit of God, to be the defining factor that binds us together, that draws us closer together, that puts us in one mind and one heart? And so today, we're beginning the first in those series of really talking about how do we do that. And this this week, uh, we're talking about learning the heartbeat of God. And so I'm going to pray. And we're going to jump into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you are with us. Not only are you with us, you are for us. Even as Cole was praying earlier, Lord, that when we walk into this space, when we enter into this this room, we're entering into your presence, and you welcome us with open arms. You do not demand that we clean ourselves up before we can present ourselves to you. You don't make us jump through hoops to be worthy of being in your throne room, but you actually sent your son Jesus to clear the path, to make straight the way into your embrace. And Lord, we're all at varying degrees of understanding what that's like. For some of us, that's really natural just to enter into your presence. And for some of us, we're really fighting this morning. But Lord, you are so sensitive and so tender with each one of us that you meet us in whatever our expectations are of encountering your presence and you say, there's something there that I can work with. 
And that's what we lay down at your feet today, Lord. Our willingness to allow you to lead us deeper into your presence. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we begin learning the heartbeat of God. And I think this is why this is so significant, because before we can learn to hear God speak, we must learn how to trust God's heart is to be with us. You know, a lot of us, maybe we're intimidated by that idea of, of listening to the voice of God. Perhaps because we don't believe that God speaks anymore, or perhaps because that, that phrase, God's voice, has been so narrowly defined for us in our past that we think, well, we, that couldn't possibly be for us. That's for other people to do. And even sometimes, maybe we believe that God speaks, but we're kind of afraid of what he might say. And so I think it's important that we kind of do the thing before the thing. We spend time talking about what is God's heart? What is God actually like? Because what you believe about what God is like will naturally radiate into everything else, all of your expectations of him, your expectations of one another, and the expectations you have of yourself. This is why that question, what is God like, is so important that we can't take that for granted. And if any of you know me, you know it's not a surprise that we're going to start with the idea that God wants to be with us. I remember it must have been six months ago in our community group, we were uh, gathered around the table to pray over food, and, and my friend Devin, he's amazing. How many of you know Devin? He's the best. He's number one. He's the number one guy. So it was Devin's turn to pray, and he take, we all take hands as we do in our, in our household, and he says, God, we testify the truth that you're here. And everybody starts snickering because that's my catchphrase, you know. Um, but it was, it was so sweet at the same time that there was this recognition. Like when we pray that we begin by acknowledging God's presence. And there's kind of two things we have to do there. Not only do we have to acknowledge God's presence, but we also have to know that his presence is good. And it's on top of that acknowledgement of God's constant loving presence to us that we can begin to craft an expectation of how God is going to move in our lives and where he's taking us. And we see this all throughout the story of Scripture, that God's heart is to be with his creation. In contrast to all of the other creation stories that came out of the Middle East at that time, the story that the Hebrews settled on was a story that God creates out of this joy, this overabundant joy. That God had a desire to share in an abundance of life, to share in togetherness. And then there's something kind of on top of that that we Christians named, and that's that we have this beautiful image of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This beautiful circuit of, of other giving love, of other centeredness. And it's out of that relationship that God creates, not out of necessity, but out of a sense of joy and a desiring to share the beauty of life and to share abundance. So God creates all of creation, the cosmos, the earth, the animals, the plants, and then finally us in order to share in the beauty of what life is. And so today I'm going to be talking about God, um, but I want you, when I say God, I want you to hear me say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because I don't want anybody to leave here today and say, well, Ryan didn't talk about Jesus. That's what next week is for. We're going to talk all about Jesus next week. But when I say God, I mean Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that all three persons within the Trinity have this desire to be with us and that they're advocating for us. 
And this is why it's so important. It's God's promise to be with us is the promise upon which all the other promises hang. You know, maybe you're, you're very steeped in Scripture and you see all of these different promises that God gives to his people of what he's going to say and what he's going to do and where he's going to lead them. And a lot of times the breakdown in communication between God and God's people is that maybe they believe in his promise of what he's going to do, but they don't necessarily believe that all, God is always going to be with them. And so it taints their understanding of how they're supposed to operate in the world. And I, one of the most helpful ways, I think, to read the entire Bible is to see kind of the whole story of Scripture is humanity working out these two main questions about the nature of God. Is he really with us? And is he really for us? And when we see the all of Scripture is the, is the people of God working that out, we begin to see that that's our stories as well that we come here Sunday after Sunday and we meet together during the week and we spend time in prayer and in scripture because those are the deepest questions within ourselves. To say, God, are you really, are you really with me though? You know, are you, are you really with me constantly? And are you actually for me? And I think it's so important that we recognize that those two questions are deep within ourselves in our search for God. Because the reality is that a lot of times our childhood wounds influence our attitude towards God. Your earliest experiences with a caretaker, parents, teachers, older siblings, uh, pastors, whomever it might be, from the earliest age, they formed your understanding of those two questions. And what happens when we grow up? How many of you grew up in the church? Like from the cradle to now? Okay, most of you. Um, many of you will know that as you grew up in the church and you learned the stories and you, you, you practiced uh, worship and, and the Christian faith, that the things that you were taught about God were taught to you by certain people. And those people naturally become the template by which you judge what God is actually like. And what I have found so fascinating in my story and in many of your stories is that as God is, is growing us into awareness of him, he's unteaching us as much as he is teaching us about who he is. And it kind of comes down to those fundamental questions. Because many of us, our childhood wounds are that we didn't, our caretakers weren't necessarily there with us, perhaps when we needed them most. Or maybe our caretakers were there with us, but their presence wasn't a reassuring, loving, compassionate, tender presence. That their presence was perhaps threatening. It kind of led us to some sort of compromise. And so when we begin to talk about God, we naturally project that onto him. And there's so much there that God needs to unteach us. And so I want to kind of break down those two questions. Is God actually with us? And is God actually for us? and to talk about how we experience those things. So number one, our journey is learning to how to acknowledge the God who is already here. Our journey, the whole journey, is for you to wake up to the reality that God has been with you this whole time. You can almost imagine kind of going back to that childhood wound experience, that there's a spectrum that runs from neglect to abuse. And how do we define neglect? Neglect is essentially we've been left alone, especially when we needed most a loving presence. Perhaps we felt abandoned or rejected, but there was an absence of a presence when we needed it most, when we were in a vulnerable state. And that's kind of how we can examine the idea of neglect. 
And what happens when we grow up in a neglectful environment is that we believe that history is just kind of ambling on. Like the story is just kind of moving on, and maybe sometimes our caretakers show up in that story to kind of maneuver things around. And so what happens a lot of times when we project that onto God, we think, well, here's my life, and it's just kind of moving along, or maybe you love history, and you look at the whole human story, and it's like, history is just kind of moving on, and every once in a while, God will make a cameo. Every once in a while, God will show up. And sometimes this even plays out in how we pray, right? Sometimes we ask God to show up, or we tell stories we're like, man, God really showed up. And there's, there's one respect where that's good language, but sometimes it betrays this idea that there was a moment when God wasn't here, and then we did the rain dance, you know, and then God showed up, and then God went back somewhere else. But what it, it often betrays is we don't really believe that God is constantly with us. I had a friend several years ago we were talking about this idea. We had kind of gone to a little conference that was about the Father Heart of God. Um, and I was asking them, what are, your, what are your big reflections from this week? And she said, you know, I realized something about my relationship with my own dad. Her parents divorced when she was very young. She, uh, her dad lived a couple miles away, and she's like, my dad was, he was always kind of there, and he'd show up every once in a while, and he's, really, he's a really nice guy. I really love my dad, but I have no expectations of him. And that's what I realized this week is that I actually project that onto God. I like God a lot. I'm really fond of him. I think he's great. And I have no expectations that he's going to show up. You can begin to see how important it is that we start to name those things that are at the depths because we don't realize what's going on beneath the surface when we talk about the nature of God. And there's actually stories in the scripture that show this kind of humanity waking up slowly to the reality of God. We find in uh, kind of in the middle of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the scripture, we find the holy family, the kind of place where God really starts to build a people. And it starts with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And actually, a lot of times when God refers to himself in the stories, he, he appears to somebody and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kind of saying, all of the things you know about that family and the ways in which I showed up to them, I'm still that God. And so we can look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and begin to formulate, oh, this is the, these are the lessons that God is trying to teach that family because those are the lessons that God is trying to teach all of us. And they're a very dramatic family. They'd make for great reality television shows these days because they're just bumping around in the dark. It is a mess. If you think your family's weird, go and read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so you know, maybe perhaps you know the story, like Abraham's just kind of living his life. He's out there with his flocks, and then God shows up to him, and God gives him this promise. And he says, I'm going to bless you with a family. And God, or Abraham says, yeah, okay. You know, Abraham's very old at this point. His wife is very old. They don't have any children. And he says, no, no, I'm going to bless you, and then all of your children are going to be a blessing to the whole world. I'm actually going to save the world through your family. He says, okay, look, let's see what happens. And Abraham waits 40 years until Sarah, his wife, is 99 years old, and then she finally gives birth to a son. And isn't that just like God sometimes to come through just when you feel like you're really, like, I don't even know if God is with me at all. This just seems like absolute poppycock. But God delivers on his promise, and he gives them a son. And so the next generation begins in, and God appears to that, that next generation, to Isaac, and he says, I'm with you. 
and I'm for you, and I'm going to do this thing that I promised to your dad. I'm going to do it through you. And so Isaac has several sons. And then we come to the story of Jacob, and Jacob is actually the second son. There's Esau and Jacob. And we're going to jump in in, uh, in Genesis 28, and we find that Isaac is blessing uh, the inheritance to the next in line. But his, this is why the family's so weird and messed up, and I do not recommend that you do this if you have more than one son. Um, Isaac's wife actually convinces the younger son that he needs to take the mantle of the next generation. And so they hide him by putting goatskin over his arms, and Isaac's blind at this point. And so when the son comes to receive the blessing, he thinks it's the older son. My dad's actually favorite verse in the whole Bible is in this passage where uh, he says, but Esau is a hairy man, and I, I am a smooth man. <laughs> Which is so good. But Isaac can't see, and he lays hands upon Jacob, the younger son, and he actually gives him the inheritance. He kind of steals that inheritance from the older son, which is who it normally would go to. And so Jacob begins this process of kind of ambling around trying to figure out what does it mean that I've got this inheritance and, some, and God is doing something through me. So he's wandering through the desert and he comes to this random place and he kind of takes a rock and he lies down and he has this dream. And in the dream, the heavens open up and there's this gigantic ladder that kind of descends from heaven to earth. And there's these angels moving up and down the ladder and there's this amazing music and it's kind of this big orchestral moment. And he sees God is up at the top of the ladder on his throne. And God speaks to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I need you to know that I'm with you. And everything that I promised to your grandfather Abraham and everything that I promised to you, or to your father, I'm promising to you. I'm going to fulfill what I said I was going to do, that through your offspring, I'm going to save the world. And Jacob has this amazing dream, and he wakes up, and in Genesis 28, 16, it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Now, how different is that from the way that we often pray? Where if that happened to us, we'd be like, man, God really showed up to me in a dream last night. Because we think it's our story and that God's making the cameo. But I think Jacob has a really beautiful kind of little adjustment here. He says, oh my goodness, this has been God's story the whole time. And I made the cameo. I'm the one that showed up to God. I'm the one that woke up to realize he's always been in this place. But I was the one that was not aware. I was ignorant. I was asleep. And that's the journey for all of us as we grow up seeking after God, that slowly each of us, you and I, were waking up to this reality that surely God has been in this place the whole time. I wasn't the one that was aware. I didn't recognize him. I didn't see him. And so we begin to practice the presence of God, opening ourselves up to recognize that he's always been in this place but that there's an invitation for each one of us to become a little bit more awake and a little bit more aware. And so first of all, God is with us. Secondly, not only do we come to recognize God's constant presence, but as we abide in him, we learn to trust that he is good. So maybe on the one end of that spectrum, we talk about neglect, which is the absence of a loving presence. The other side we might talk about as being abuse. And maybe you experienced that to some degree in your own story, that there was somebody present, but that presence was not loving and reassuring. 
That presence was threatening. That presence was unsafe. That presence was somebody that you needed to hide from. And so sometimes when we talk about presence and we just leave the conversation there, we believe that can actually be quite threatening for many of us because we're projecting that onto God. And we'd rather that God was not eternally present to us. Because we're afraid if God is here, what's he going to do? How many of you grew up in purity culture in the 1990s in youth group? How many of you were absolutely terrified to do anything because Jesus is watching? <laughs> Don't look at that girl. Jesus is watching you. So yeah, God's present, but you would rather he wasn't. And a lot of us are terrified of being found out by God. We're terrified that Jesus is going to show up and he's going to do something to us. And again, this is what we find in the story that is, as the people of God, first Israel and then the early church are kind of working out this reality of, of what does it mean for God to be with us? Some of them kind of get it. They're like, okay, God's with me, but I don't know if I can trust in his presence. God's presence is a little bit scary. You know, one of my favorite stories, and uh, the prophet Isaiah has this vision, and he see, realizes he sees God on his throne, and he says, oh my gosh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and an unclean people. And he tries to hide from God. But it's powerful because God doesn't come in and wag his finger and say, that's right, you're unclean, you're unworthy, you need to clean yourself up before you come into my presence. No, he sends an angel, and the angel grabs a coal from the fire, and he comes, and he cleanses his lips. And then God says, I need someone to go and be my messenger. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. How many times do we see that in the story of Jesus? You know, maybe Paul, or sorry, Thomas, after the resurrection, you know, all the other disciples come and they're like, we've seen Jesus, he's alive. And he says, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not taking that on a word. I love that man too much to just go on rumors. I need to experience him for myself. And so one day they're all in together in prayer and Jesus walks, actually walks through the door. And he doesn't walk up to Thomas and go, Thomas, you doubted for 2,000 years. People are going to say, uh-uh-uh, doubting Thomas, you need to get it together. You just need to have more faith. No, that's not what Jesus does. He says, Thomas, come here. I want you to take your hand. I want you to put it in my side. And I want you to, to feel the marks in my hands. You see, God, especially the God that's revealed in Jesus, is not so worried about our hang-ups, about our hesitations. But that takes a lot of time for us to learn how to trust that God's presence to us, his constant presence, is actually a good thing. And so we find this again later on in the story of Jacob. Jacob's continuing to kind of wander, trying to find his place, discovering what on earth does this inheritance mean? What is God doing in my life? And so he kind of leaves his family and he goes off alone and he falls asleep and he has another dream. But in this dream, he wakes up and there's this man there and this man starts to wrestle with him. And we kind of can imply from the context that this is perhaps God himself. And so they wrestle all night long. It says they wrestle until daybreak. And then this man says, you need to let me go. And Jacob says, no way, Jose, I'm not letting you go until you give me a blessing. And so the man says, okay, I'm going to give you a blessing. From now on, your name's going to be Israel, which means wrestle with God. And then he touches Jacob in the hip and dislocates it, and he walks with a limp for the rest of his days. So be careful what you ask for when it comes to a blessing from the Lord. 
And so Jacob, again, he wakes up out of this dream, and it says this. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. See, Jacob knew that God was in this place, but I was not aware of it. But God, Jacob needed to understand something else. Not only is God present, not only does he want to interact with me, but he's going to spare my life. The word peniel means the face of God. And how many of you are standing on testimonies today where you say, I have seen the face of God. And not only was my life spared, but it is more than it was before I met him. How many of you have that story? How many of you have a hundred little stories like that? But it takes time for us to learn to trust that not only is God with us, but his heart is for us. But the more that we learn to trust in God's heart, the more we actually look forward to being with him. Several years ago, in the ministry school that I led in Nashville, I was walking one of my students through some inner healing prayer, some deep, dark things that were kind of stuck down within her, that she had held back from shame, that she was afraid of being found out, that she was afraid that God was going to judge her for because of the past that she had come from, because of the religious environment that she had grown out of. And we went through this process and we prayed some healing over things, and a lot of things were released, and at the end of it, we're both kind of exhausted, and we're in tears, and she said, is it always going to hurt like this? I said, I don't know. I don't think so. One thing I can promise you is it's going to come a little bit easier next time, and it might go a little bit quicker, and believe it or not, you might actually learn to enjoy it because you begin to trust the work of God in your life is for your benefit. The writer William Paul Young often talks about it like this. You're walking through a forest in the dark and you step into a hornet's nest and all of a sudden these hornets are flying around and they're stinging you like mad and your, your adrenaline is pumping and you're trying to get out of there and all of a sudden you see a dark figure moving towards you. What do you automatically project onto that dark figure? You think they're coming to get you. It's your instinct. It's how you've been wired to survive. And it's totally natural. But for us to learn to trust the presence that comes to deliver and heal us, that takes some time. And that's why we call it living by faith. Because it's not the easiest thing in the world. There should not be an expectation for you to just inherently trust that God's presence. But the more that you live in it, the more that you trust him and what he's doing in your life, the more that you will trust that he is good and that he has a plan and what feels like pain is actually for your benefit. So the more that we trust, the more we practice the presence of God, the more that it becomes second nature. It does not come naturally to us. We must practice the presence of God in first nature. That means that we focus on it, we create time for it, we develop spiritual practices that help us to make that a reality in our lives. But the more that we do this discipline, the more it moves from being first nature, something we have to focus on and be intentional, to something that becomes second nature. 
that it becomes like breathing. How many of you remember the exact route that you took to get here today? For many of us, driving is almost second nature. We just kind of show up in a place. We don't remember every move that we made, but it's because we've practiced it over and over and over again that it becomes like breathing. And I know I have many people in my, old, in my own life, you know, people who have been walking the Christian journey for a long time, and to be with them is to be like breathing in and out the presence of God because it's so natural to them. And for many of us that are still young in our journey, we need those models of this is what it can look like. This is where we're headed if we're disciplined today to practice the presence of God, that eventually it becomes second nature to us. One of my favorite writers that demonstrated this so beautifully, his name is Brother Lawrence. He was a French monk in the 17th century, and he lived in this little monastery that was pretty integrated with its community. And the, the amazing thing about Brother Lawrence, if you know anything about him, is that he was a pretty unremarkable guy. His job in the monastery, he worked in the kitchen. He cooked and he did the dishes because he actually wasn't talented enough to do any of the other things that the monks were doing at that time, making beer or, you know, weaving baskets, I don't know, whatever monks do. He wasn't talented enough to do any of that, so he had to work in the kitchen. And there's this little book, it's called The Practice of the Presence of God, and it's a collection of letters that Brother Lawrence wrote uh, to other, to admirers of his, people who really respected this man's kind of spiritual tenacity. And it's a collection of letters that he wrote to people, and it's a, it's a collection of letters that people wrote of reflections of what this man was like. And they always talked about just how naturally he lived in the presence of God. He would often talk about, hey, sometimes when I'm just done with the dishes, I'll just lay out on the floor in the kitchen and just soak in God's presence, just thanking him for that opportunity. Now, how many of you this week did the dishes and then you just laid in the presence of God? <laughs> you know? But he so naturally exuded this. And this is, I want to read you something that he wrote kind of as an encouragement to us of this is what it looks like for us to practice the presence. He says, God does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, past and present. He has bestowed on you in the midst of your troubles to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during the meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry very loudly. He is nearer to us than we think. It doesn't take some sort of grandiose ceremony for you to get into the presence of God, for you to wake up to the reality of the God who has always been here for you to encounter the face of God and to find your life spared and handed back to you to be more than it was. So often what it takes are just little moments, little acts of adoration, of acknowledgement, of praise to get you into that place. And so I want to teach you this morning a very simple form of meditation that just is something that just helps me so much to get into the presence of God, for me to wake up, for me to see him face to face. We're going to be meditating on a piece of scripture that's called Psalm 139. I know many of you appreciate this, or at least two of you have it tattooed on your bodies, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And so I'm going to just teach you how to meditate on scripture. 
Um, and we're just going to see what happens, how the Lord speaks to you. This whole year is about us learning how to recognize God's presence and then learning how to listen to him. And so we want to practice this more uh, from week to week. So what I want you to do is just to kind of to get in a posture of receiving. And that means kind of opening up your body a little bit, not being so like crossed up or, or you know, that oftentimes that's what leads to us being really twitchy. And some of you, uh, you're, you listen like, you learn by listening. How many of you are audio listeners? A couple of you. It's, it's pretty typical. It's about 60% of us should be audio, li- uh, visual li- listeners or learners. Uh, 30% should be audio, and about 10% of you are kinetic, okay? And I want to, this year, I want to teach you meditation practices that hit all of those. So I'm going to read, and if you want to, you can just close your eyes, and you can listen to the words of this psalm, or you can read it. It's going to be up on the screens. But I want you just to be open And just to see, what does the Lord want to show you? Maybe there's words that he highlights to you. Maybe he gives you images or he speaks to you something out of your own story. Just be open and available to however God wants uh, to reveal his constant loving presence to you in this moment. So I'm going to pray. We're going to practice the presence of God. Again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect God, three in one. We take it by faith that not only are you with us, but you're also for us. That you're beckoning us to wake up to the fact that you've been here this whole time and maybe we weren't aware of it. That you want to show us your face So, Lord, as we dive into the words of your servant, David, speak to each one of us in a way that we are familiar with hearing you. Reveal things to us in ways that we can understand you. Surprise us and delight us by what you show us. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. through your nose, out through your mouth. God, we thank you that your presence is an inviting presence, that it is by grace that you have made the first move to reveal yourself to each one of us wherever we're at in our journey of waking up to the reality of who you are. God, as we continue on this journey, lead us into new understanding, 
new joy in being seen by you, of being known by you. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. And perhaps God is revealing something to you in the words of that psalm that I want you to hold on to. Maybe you need to write it down. You need to make a testament. Maybe you need to take a rock. You need to turn it up on its side and say, this is Peniel because this is the place where I'm at the face of God. But when we learn to trust in God's loving presence, all the other elements of the faith find their meaning. This is the promise upon which all the other promises of God hang. We actually begin to define these things because of his loving presence to us. Love, hope, joy, justice, glory, grace, mercy. All these words are extensions of God's loving presence to us. So as we worship, I want you to continue to practice the presence of God, to see what it is he wants to reveal to you about your attitudes towards him, that he is with you and that he's for you, to worship by faith and then to worship out of experience and allow that to continue to build up within you this robust understanding and expectation for God to be with you. So let's worship together. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.